Today's scripture reading is from Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Charlene. Appreciate that. Well, good morning. My name is Stacy. Cro- oh, that was nice. Good morning. You say it back. That's so cool. Oh, thank you. Uh, my name is Stacy Croft. I am the lead pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in town and one of the pastors here on staff and uh, glad to be here with you this morning. And so I bring greetings from driving back and forth this morning. Uh, I was hauling it in between, so I may have driven by some of you, or with you, on the way with this weird guy in the microphone. People always see that and are like, gosh, he must be on Bluetooth, but no, I'm actually going to preach, um, so it's good to be with you. And um, it's interesting as we've been able to go through this uh, glorious chapter, uh, a chapter in Romans, uh, I'm really humbled to be able to preach this to you because, to be honest, if you just paid attention to what was read, it speaks for itself. There's a lot of what I'm doing and I pray the Holy Spirit does in you that I can't do, um, that I can't do in me. To, to hear the questions that are raised, those are our questions. Uh, to, to hear the answers that are given, those are the answers we need, we long to hear. Uh, when I was, uh, it was the summer before my sixth grade year in, uh, in I was in the pool with my dad, I was swimming as we often did in the summer, enjoying kind of the last moments of the summer, and um, as I was with my father and splashing around, I, I kind of noticed he seemed a little heavier than normal, his countenance was not light at all, and uh, as we talked and the kind of afternoon wore on, he then began to tell me about he, how he and my mom were separating, and soon after would be divorced. And it was an event that I remember kind of even the emotion of it um, in the moment. It's kind of strange. And many of you have those kind of events, I know, uh, as well as I do. Not just those large marker events, but those ones in between that really set the course and create the grid and goggles through which you view and make sense of love. That you're asking questions, um, and two probably major questions in your life all the time through those lenses or grid through which has been given you. Am I loved and does love stay? And those are two really difficult things for us to answer. We're looking around all the time for that. 
I mean, that is one of the greatest threads and themes in our culture is love. It's on billboards. It's on, in our, every song. It's in everything we watch. It is a constant thing. We fight for it. We fight for defining it. We, we have it all around us, and yet how do we answer those questions? We are all walking through life with that grid. Whether it's the same grid as I have, same similar markers or different ones, you all have those. And you're trying to make sense of those questions. There was a, an Atlantic article that I thought was perfect for this about not only is love there, but does it really stay? Isn't that oftentimes even the bigger question? Is it permanent? Peter Berkowitz wrote this. He said, the lessons of impermanence and the systems of separateness intertwine constantly, complementing and reinforcing each other, quickening and emboldening familiar human proclivities. They encourage us to distrust others because we attribute to others the same attachment to the freedom to do as one pleases that we discern in ourselves. They impel us to suppose that others are withholding themselves from us because to safeguard our independence, we routinely withhold a part of ourselves from them. They goad us to suspect that friends and lovers are secretly devising schemes for a fast getaway because we are carefully and covertly formulating such contingency plans all along. What a, what a commentary of not just that grid of am I love, but does love stay? Is it permanent? I mean, that's, isn't that what I've found in my struggle as I've seen those markers of trying to be loved and using performance and goodness and millions of things that I've used that weave together my personality to say, love me for this. I've asked people and things to love me, and yet every time, even if it's a good thing, it always goes away. And I always need to ask for more. And isn't that the issue? That we may seek that. You have that grid, and through that you ask the question, am I loved? But you always know that you have to ask again and again and again. And long to be loved there. Romans chapter 8 was written for this reason, assurance. You know, it's considered by many theologians as the gem of gems. One reason we call it the greatest chapter ever written isn't because we just think that. We've just made an opinion. It's because over centuries, as people have delved into Romans, which is this massive theological treatise, it was a letter written by Paul. And as he wrote that letter to a group of people he hadn't even gotten to see, he was trying to convey to them, what does it really mean to be a Christian and follow and live in Jesus? And he got to this fulcrum of that book, eight lies right in the middle of 16 chapters of glorious writing. And what is it about? What do these Christians need to hear more than anything? Assurance. That's what the whole chapter's about. Think about this. It begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. And we need to have that. Isn't assurance what we long for? Assurance connected to love, isn't that what we want? This is literally what makes Christianity a distinguishing marker in religions and philosophies is there's an actual tangible assurance for us about His love. It's not just a poem. We could read this and go, that's a great work of literature on God's love. But it's set much deeper than that. 
So this morning, let's look at those two questions. I want to see the questions and the answers for us in this passage because that's what they are. Am I loved and does love stay? Am I loved and does love stay? As Paul begins this, and he begins by looking at am I loved, there are several, actually five questions that Paul asks, and they can be condensed into these two main categories. And the first first part of it is really interesting because it it kind of draws out negatively how we make sense of love. He starts with this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Again, he comes later in verse 33, who shall bring any charge? Who can bring a charge against us? Again in 34, who is to condemn? Who can condemn us? You see what he's doing? He's starting to paint words and language to make us see ourselves in a courtroom. To see ourselves walk into the courtroom and imagine it, sitting on a bench, maybe like this, maybe a little harder than that, no cushion. Just you, a judge, and a litany of witnesses lined up. Witnesses that would come into that box and charge you with things that you believe about yourself, some perceived, some real, to charge you with the ways that you are not pretty enough. You are not smart enough. You're not well-adjusted. You don't fit in socially. You don't do well at work. You don't make enough to take care of your family. All the ways that you are charged and that we condemn ourselves with it, that we believe the condemnation. Imagine yourself sitting there. The judge is here listening to all of these charges against you. All of these that you know. Some of which that you wish and hope sitting there aren't ever drawn out and yet that witness comes forward and you go, there it is again. Tim Keller, who's a a pastor in New York City, wrote a book and it's actually my favorite book that he's written. It's only about 40 pages. You can read it in an hour. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And in that he writes this about that courtroom. He says, we look for that ultimate verdict every day in all the situations and people around us. That means every single day we are on trial. Every day we put ourselves back into that courtroom. Every single day. And we hope that someone up there, someone on that witness stand will tell us that we're loved for something. We look to them to give us encouragement. But every time we're charged and we condemn ourselves, how easy it is Notice he uses the language of condemnation and he began this passage with there is no condemnation, but yet we all put ourselves back into that courtroom because we need to know, am I really loved? Is this really true? Is there real assurance in this? Because we have accusers day in and day out, people around us that we look to to give us that, to tell us we're loved so we can go on. Satan himself accuses us, you couldn't be loved. There's no way. The condemnation is palpable in your life and mine. We hold on to it. In some ways, we may hold it as a merit badge of something we try and get over, but yet we can never do it. Paul is saying we have to understand, even in the preposition here, if God is for us, for that preposition, he's even saying in the prepositions in this passage in Greek are saying you must have someone 
as your advocate, to intercede for you. And then he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give all things? I think we need to pause for a moment and understand this. You may be here today, and maybe you said, I've followed Jesus for a long time. Maybe church is, a, is something, a part of your DNA, and you come regularly. I want to first ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to not do that thing that maybe you often do as you hear a song or hear a sermon and go, yeah, I know the love of Jesus. If you say that you know it, you actually don't. Because oftentimes we do that and walk out these doors and you go right back into that courtroom to justify yourself just like I do. It is not me that he gave him up, gave up. It is his own son. And we need to camp out there for a minute. If you're here exploring Christianity, as often I talk to people across, the t- across town as well, this is the good news of Jesus. This is the gospel which means good news. It means that the language that he's using is to say he did not spare his own son. Look, many of us in this room may give good things to people, right? Maybe you've been at a, at, at a Starbucks line before and somebody in front of you, you pull up in the, in, to the window and they say, hey, the person in front of you paid for your drink. And you're like, that's awesome. Wait, do I have to pay for the people behind me? You know, you have to kind of ask that. There are things you kind of ask. But that's a thing, right? What would it be like for you to give yourself? Sometimes giving of yourself is quite a bit. It feels edgy. It feels as though when you're stepping in to actually give of yourself, to help someone, to, to heal relationships, to give love to someone of yourself, not just a thing, it can push your boundaries. Imagine giving someone else for it. Go there for a moment. Imagine giving the most precious relationship in your life for someone else. To actually give them that person, even maybe a child. You know, he's using language here from the Old Testament from when Abraham was actually to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he's wanting us to understand there's a massive thing here from all of time that God is setting up. He is setting up the giving of his son Do you understand, God's relationship to you and me is actually conditional. You you know, every time people say God's love is unconditional, it's actually, that's actually not true necessarily. Did you know His love is conditional? This passage is telling us that. It's actually saying the conditions are there and they are costly, but they are all laid on someone else. The conditions of of love are put on you because of Jesus. Because in flesh, here's the difference. Jesus had to be in flesh to actually identify with every charge, every witness that comes up to charge you and you are condemned. He is in flesh to actually receive that. Whatever temptation it is, whatever sins you have have done, isn't that crazy? I mean, I love that David said this. We are confessing our sins. Do you realize that's actually nuts? To think about us just proclaim, here I am. Here's who I really am. And yet every witness already knows that. And God has set his son to be the one in very form of being to identify with your sin. 
And this is the most precious relationship that he has, and yet he's the one that when the charge comes up, the judge, God says, acquitted, 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 innocent, loved. Because he puts all of it on his son. Tony Dungy, who was a coach of a couple teams, Super Bowl coach, now he's a commentator of sorts, um, profound coach, actually, the first uh, African-American coach to coach a Super Bowl, actually win a Super Bowl. He's a great speaker, and he was speaking before the Colts went into their first Super Bowl win at what was called AIA, Athletes in Action. It's kind of a fellowship of Christian athletes, different kind of sort of Christian grouping of athletes. <clears throat> and in his speech, he was talking about his three sons, all of which were meaningful um, a part of what his forming of knowing who God was. He came to his last son, his oldest, who had literally died that year while he was coaching and on his way to the Super Bowl. And Tony said this was the most sensitive and compassionate person his son was, always looking to other people to care for. And he said, as it was incredibly painful to lose his son, a couple of events happened along the way. He received several letters from people after they heard him at his son's funeral speaking, and they were inspired to mend their own relationships with their children. He said his son was an organ donor, and through this, there were two people given new corneas, and they were able to see again. And he also said a girl who knew his son, who was not a follower of Jesus, but through his death and watching the family became a follower of Jesus. But he said this about the event. He said he knows that his son benefited a lot of people, but he said, I also know this, that if God had a conversation with me about this, and he said, I can help some people see, I can help some relationships, I can save some people's lives eternally, but I would have to take your son to do it. You choose. I know how I would answer, that I would say, no, no way. I'm sorry, God, you cannot have him. Here's what's amazing. He finishes by saying, and here's the awesome thing about our God. He says yes every time. You realize that many, and maybe even in this room, view Christianity in this way. It is so profound what God is doing by not sparing His Son that some have claimed that Christianity is cosmic child abuse. But here is what is distinct about it. That God not only sets forth the plan that it says He was willing to crush His Son and actually pleased God to crush His own Son, but that Jesus Himself says, no one makes me lay down my life. I lay it down willingly. I take up my Father's plan because as it says in this passage, it is Christ, the love of Christ. Jesus loves you. Do you think that's cheesiness that should be etched on a pillow? That is beautiful love, stretched out and put in death, that he would identify it. This is why he's called our intercessor. This is why it says, he who's interceding for us, that in every way he physically, relationally, emotionally hears those witnesses 
against you and says, let me be condemned. This is why he sits physically. He didn't just die physically. He ascended physically. And now he sits next to God the Father. And every time that witness comes forward for you to say you are condemned, do you know what Jesus' role is? He turns to the Father and he says, innocent. Even now, right this very second, he is saying, innocent. That is why he has to be physically in heaven. This is why Christianity is unique, because it's not just a bunch of God loves you. It's that your intercessor is a physical, tangible person sitting next to God the Father, speaking beautiful words of your name. Very moment that you condemn yourself. Are you loved? This is a love that cannot be removed. Do you realize that's why election is spoken of in this? Predestination last week, election. Do you know what, why Paul says that? It's because it's saying it was to, for assurance and humility, not for your arrogance and inactivity. Election and predestination are beautiful words that people reading this weren't going, let me write down these theological terms and figure them out. They needed to hear that God's grip of love on them was one that they could not pry open and no one else could either. That is powerful. Are we loved? It is set. There's nothing you can do to change it. But here's the thing. Is it does it stay? I would say, for me, that is even a larger question. Maybe you're sitting and you're going, that's great. It's a great part of the sermon. I, yeah, I'm, I can feel love. But you know what? There's a huge difference between talking about love and experiencing it. Because the, the first portion of this was really talking about the legal stamp that you are. The second portion is really relationally unpacking what, who can separate us from the love of Christ. Who can? You know, C.S. Lewis, there are a lot of essays written by him and a lot of quotes we could quote on him about this, but my, one of my favorite essays he's ever written was called Meditations in a Tool Shed. It's an essay where he is actually walking on his grounds of his home and he was in the garden and he, <clears throat> as Lewis would do, see things, and probably stretching his legs of sorts, sees a shed in the garden, walks over, opens the door for some reason, just wants to check it out, maybe hasn't seen it in a while, goes in and the door closes behind him. <clears throat> All of a sudden, he sees this beam of light from a crack at the top of the door shining down. You know, you've seen those lights before that kind of find their way through a hole and you can kind of see dust floating in and out of them. He took a moment, he watched as it just sat there and took it in as what it looked like around him as a light. And then he thought, oh, I want to see where this light's coming from. So he stood and he allowed the beam actually to fall upon his eyes. All of a sudden he said everything else went black. And all he could see was through the crack these trees waving and the sun 90 million miles away. And he said there was a huge difference between looking at the beam and looking along it. And he said love is like that. It's one thing for us to talk about love. Here's what it is. Here's the stamp of it. It's another thing for it to let it fall on your eyes, to experience it, to, for everything else to go dark, and for you to be enveloped by it. 
I don't care if you're an emotional person or not. That is the love of Christ in Jesus. It's not an emotion that comes and goes like waves on the shore. It is a beam that should fall upon us and everything else goes dark. Because when he begins here and he says, these things, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he gets this list. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? What what is he listing? He's listing all the ways that we are fearful of love not remaining. All the ways we're afraid. And here's what's fascinating. If you look at this list, Paul is actually quoting from 2 Corinthians about his own experience. This isn't just something he thought, what are we afraid of? He thought, what am I afraid of? Because he actually experienced all of these things save the last one, the sword, which is execution. Look at him for a moment. Shall tribulation or distress, these are circumstances, right? Let's ask the question. Let's diagnostically look at our hearts. Do you believe that love stays whether you have a good day or not? Do you measure your love in Christ by how well your job is going? How well you are doing emotionally? How good your circumstances are around you? Imagine that. Thinking that we do that. We do that every day. Our circumstances decide that for us. What about persecution? Maybe some of you are under personal attack. Maybe you've received persecution or even given someone persecution. Does love stay in spite of someone else's opinion for you? Even if it's true? Does Jesus' love stay? What about physical lack? Look at that, famine or nakedness. What about when you, the things you need the most, you don't have? You think God loves you? You think his love stays? I think you're starting to pick up the picture here. Do you realize just this last week we've had almost all of these, if not all of these, with the exception of execution, happen in Houston, Texas? I have family there, and I've been receiving videos and such, not news videos, firsthand videos of Black Hawk helicopters landing on rooftops, of boats and jet skis in the streets, pulling people out of these things, losing everything, stuck in their homes. I've seen a toll road, which I've driven on, which is almost as deep as the ceiling, full of water. Do you think these people are asking, are they loved and does love stay? How is that answered? Don't we need a God who doesn't just say you're loved when we're looking at the water rise? Don't we need a God who actually, in tangible form, has actually been through every single word on this list? We may not have answers why. In fact, most of the time we don't. Some of you are in distress. Some of you are in places that are on this list right now. And yet Jesus goes not only through the list, but to the end, even sword execution. 
so that he may identify with every distress, tribulation, persecution, famine, nakedness, and danger in your life. That is what Christianity is about. That is a love that, in my opinion, is more profound than him saying, let me just give you everything back. And it would. It would help. And we should. And we should give them everything we can. But we should also give them ourselves. And we should also show them a Jesus who is an intercessor physically for them. So they may know in flesh their lives matter. Not just the things around them, not just their circumstances, but their very lives. Jesus does this. And here's what's even more powerful here, I think. He finishes with a list here in verse 38 and 39 of not just our fears, but our realities. The realities that we live in. For I'm sure neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything in all creation. Look at that list for a moment. Think of this. Life and death. What mode of existence can you live in where you are separated from the love of Christ in Jesus? The love of God in Jesus. There is not even life and death. The modes of existence, like that's all we have, life and death. And yes, yet what has God done? He has sent his son into life and death. And what does it say? And raised him from it. What about angels, nor rulers, nor powers? Does love stay in, in spite of who is in authority? Now that, that could be either in our country, that could be actually many commentators believe this even means spiritually. What rulers that we depend on spiritually for us? Who is the one who does not move and intercedes. Who's the one that all other rulers bow to regardless? And yet he submitted himself. He said, as they said, take the crown, be the king, remove Rome. Isn't that what they, the Christians wanted? Take back Rome for us. Jesus said, I'm going to actually submit myself. And I'm going to die on a cross. He was different than any other ruler. Jesus submitted his heart so that he might be glorified, so we could trust him as a ruler, right? We're always going to be divided on who we think rules. This one deserves all allegiance. What about even the next ones? Nor present, nor things to come. Time. Is there any amount of time that you think can remove Jesus from you? even though it was thousands of years ago? What about space, height, nor depth? <laughs> Many of you may have just sent children to college, or maybe you're here from school, and you're calling your children saying, hey, are you doing okay? How's it going? They're like, oh, stop calling, I'm okay. Many people I've talked to recently are in, involved in long-distance relationships. Do you know what this passage is saying? There is no long-distance relationship here with God with you. He is with you. 
now. Jesus is with you now. And nothing in all creation can keep us from the love of God. Look, I want to talk for a moment about the eclipse. And, you know, there was eclipse not too long ago, right? Uh, I don't know if you saw it, but it was a magnificent thing. And as I read this about nothing in all creation, it strikes me in this. And I want to read from Annie Dillard, who wrote an article on her experience with the eclipse years ago. It will sound eerily familiar. But listen to what she says. What happened when she experienced it was this. It began with no ado. It was odd that such a well-advertised public event should have no starting gun, no overture, and no introductory speaker. I should have known right then that I was out of my depth. Without pause or preamble, silent as orbits, a piece of the sun went away. We looked at it through welder's goggles. A piece of the sun was missing, and in its place we saw empty sky. I had seen a partial eclipse in 1970. A partial eclipse is very interesting. It bears almost no relation to a total eclipse. Seeing a partial eclipse bears the same relation to seeing a total eclipse as kissing a man does to marrying him, or as flying in an airplane does to falling out of an airplane. Although the one experience precedes the other, it in no way prepares you for it. Do you understand that in the eclipse, no matter how you took that, it was an event that was colossal for our our city. Three enormous masses of space and time lined up to create this glorious hole in the sky. And but for only a moment. It did not last. And it was riveting. And yet it was gone. And you need to understand that when you come to this table in a moment, you're seeing something that is an event. In fact, the word gospel, evangel, means there's a proclamation of an event. But here's what's unique. The event never stopped. When you come taste this bread and wine, what are we saying? We proclaim the Lord's death, His love for us, until He comes again set permanent. Are you loved? You get to taste it. Does it stay? He will come again and show you that if He came the first time, He will come again. If you don't know Him this morning, I want to say this. We don't, maybe, do, maybe I don't do this enough at Intown, but I want to invite you to come to know Him. Take Him up. Test Him. Prove Jesus' worth and His love. Come find me or someone else and ask. Ask the questions. Am I loved and does it stay? And as you come to this table, prepare your hearts again to experience the beam that falls upon your eyes and that tasting of bread and wine. Let's pray. Father, prepare our hearts. We, every single one in this room comes to this table with a grid of trying to create love for ourselves and hoping that we can make it stick. God, it is not us that set this table, it is you. And it is your body and it is your blood, not mine, not anyone in this room. 
would that stick in our minds that your love is set permanently upon us in the name and through the blood of Jesus. Amen.